Welcome to our latest installment of our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Now, this installment, as promised, we will provide our review of the Deep Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind, which was recently released on Blu-ray and digitally on such platforms as Amazon, iTunes, and Google Play. Our review is based on the one-disc Blu-ray edition. However, we want to advise you that there is a two-disc special edition of the film that you would need to order directly from the company, Shout. The difference between the releases is that the two-disc version includes an extended 50-minute roundtable on the show featuring the DS9 showrunner, directors, and producers. The two-disc version also has a conversation on the process of writing incidental music for Star Trek featuring veteran composers Kevin Kiner and Dennis McCarthy. Following our discussion of the documentary, we will close our podcast with a number of news items on the Star Trek universe. Okay, let's start off talking about what we left behind. Um, Looking back at Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Um, If you were to ask each one of us what our favorite Star Trek television show, Adele would probably say the original series, right? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, since it was first running during her formative years. Yes. Um, However, without a doubt, my favorite uh, series, which I've said repeatedly, is Deep Space Nine. In, in syndication, it ran for seven years between 1993 and 1999 and was the only series whose run overlapped another Star Trek show. The beginning of the run was overlapped by The uh, Next Generation and the ending of the run was overlapped with Voyager. So, Deep Space Nine is the only Star Trek show that never had itself solely for the attention of the Star Trek audience. With executive producers Rick Berman and showrunner Michael Pilar at the helm, DS9 would also be the first series developed after the death of Star Trek series creator Gene Wesley Roddenberry. (laughs) Now, after the first two seasons, Pilar was replaced by Iris Stephen Bear for the remainder of the show's run. It was Bear who spearheaded the making of the DS9 documentary using crowdfunding to finance the film. Bear originally planned to shoot and finish the film in a few years, but complications around transferring excerpts of episodes to high definition made the project longer than to complete than expected. And it's certainly worth the wait. I mean, you see those high-definition scenes from the original, from Deep Space Nine, you really, really see the beauty of, of what they shot, and you see the depth of it. Um, it's a high-definition image that's really stunning and seems, and almost seemingly have the cinematic quality oh, that we've become accustomed in other shows, like Discovery. High definition makes the episode excerpts appear new and modern. Um, after seeing it, what it could be, I think 
CBS should definitely decide that they should spend the money and time on remastering the entire series. Well, I agree. But even without access to high-definition copies, the documentary makes the case that the quality of the cast and scripts make the series highly worth watching today. Right. In fact, unlike other Star Trek shows, including The Next Generation and Enterprise, the show garnered critical acclaim from the time of its first season, but it certainly was not a darling of the fans. Yeah, the documentary, What We Left Behind, acknowledges this criticism by having the producers and cast members read po Poison Pen uh, fan letters that complaining about the series, and I believe this is the most effective device used by the filmmakers to tackle some of the major concerns some fans had with the show. So let's talk about those criticisms, since some of them are the common issues cited by some Star Trek fans that have been echoed with their criticism of Star Trek Discovery. Detractors of the show claims that DS9 is untraditional and, and does not share the optimistic vision of the future devised by Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, the main charges about DS9 being untraditional stem from the fact that it was set in a space station instead of a starship which explored the galaxy. Starfleet personnel on DS9 encountered new beings on the space station instead of discovering them in their own habitat. And I, and I don't understand why the setting of the show proves such an obstacle for so many fans. I really don't get that. Um, DS9 takes place after a devastating conflict with the Borg that decimated most of, this, of, of Starfleet's uh, fleet yeah. itself. While taking time to rebuild that, it was only logical that captains would be stationed where they could be of greatest benefit to the Federation. That's right. And that means like space stations, formerly, and specifically this one, yeah. formerly con controlled by the brutal mil militaristic Cardassians, right next to a stable wormhole. Right. It proved to be an assignment requiring strong leadership since the station was taken over by the over by the Bajorans after a long guerrilla war. The Bajorans were, were invited into the United Federation of Planets to join jointly run the station, and because of that, they understood that the Cardassians may return to try to retake the station as well as their home planet. And they were not about to have that again. And I think that those those dynamics added for quite of an interesting set of drama at the beginning of the series. Yes, so for the first two years, action remained confined to the space station. However, when Ira Steven Berg became the showrunner at the start of season three, the Starship USS Defiant was added to allow for some episodes to take place away from the station. Yeah. Another complaint regarding the show's untraditional nature was the fact that DS9 was serialized mm -hmm. instead of being a series of standalone episodes or two-parters. However, let's remember the, how it really was. During this time of the original airing through syndication, Viewers were at the mercy of stations with broadcast rights. Mm -hmm. If an episode was preempted due to some special event or some big news story, mm -hmm. one may not be able to see that missing episode until its rerun was shown 
or the season was available on VHS or video disc. Mm -hmm. So missing one episode or a series of episodes could definitely impair your enjoyment of a serialized show. And if you didn't have some other means of finding out or learning what previously had occurred. Right. And this was not the only show that had that problem. Yeah. Babylon 5, which was running at the exact same time and was getting moved around in schedule, also suffered from this because it, too, was largely serialized. Oh, yeah. So, on the other hand, serialization allowed a much greater depth of storylines and characterization than one would have ordinarily experienced. Unlike other series, all of the major characters and even some recurring characters were afforded well-written, complex arcs that allowed actors rich opportunities to use and expand their talents in a way most satisfactory to themselves and their audience. And I would say also that one of the things that came out of this, if you look at it in comparison to other shows, Voyager for a fact, Voyager less serialized, and in many cases, the show had amnesia on how major events oh, yeah. had occurred when when they were in, when when they would move forward. That's for example, right. yeah, after the the Scorpion episodes where they melded crew between the two Federation starships, yeah, we saw only a couple of the those members of that of that crew again in like a succeeding episode. And then they were gone for, right. for years. They We didn't hear or anything about any of those characters going forward. That's right. Another criticism that was labeled towards DS9 is that it did not shy away from conflicts amongst crew members as a way, as, as in the case with other previous Star Trek shows. Um, crew members often had disagreements about the station policy or handling of a particular issue or even interpersonal difficulties. But it did, but what we should really think about is that it should be expected that on a space station where people of different cultures, races, and backgrounds, and ethics attempt to work and live together in close proximity might have some friction. Oh, so I yeah. think it was far more realistic in its yeah. depiction of life than, than any of the shows previous. That's right. And, 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 and I want to put in one other thing. I think talking about Roddenberry's vision of the future being optimistic, I wouldn't characterize it that way. Okay, we're going to get into that well, then, in our next podcast. I know that, I know that. But what I would like to say at this point, I think if I was being most critical, I would call it naive in yep. many cases. If I was being more charitable, I would probably say he was more aspirational than optimistic. All right. But as you said, we're going to talk about that in a subsequent subject. So probably one of the most often voiced uh, criticisms of those alleging to safeguard Roddenberry's legacy is the depiction and treatment of religion as practiced by the Bajorans. These critics contend Roddenberry strictly discouraged any mention of religion in Star Trek scripts. However, it's not true that religion was never cited in any Roddenberry scripts or those he supervised. Raised as a Southern Baptist, Roddenberry rejected organized religion while a teenager, but those who knew him say he was not an atheist. Still, he routinely discouraged any treatment of religion in scripts 
which supported its validity. In case there were are those who, who were inspired to watch DS9, we don't want to spoil the special spiritual connection between the Bajoran religion and the ones of the Star Trek officers that is revealed in the latter years of the series. However, in no other Star Trek show is religion treated as seriously and as, as if it is a legitimate aspect of one's culture as we find in Deep Space Nine. That's right. Some of you may think the treatment of the Klingon religion stands as an exception. However, if you recall the season six Next Generation episode, Rightful Heir, Worf has doubts about the validity of the Klingon religion when he discovers that Kalos, the legendary unifier of the Klingon Empire, had not returned from the dead as prophesied. Instead, the person thought to be the historical Kalos was actually a clone. This storyline, in which religious myth is debunked, appears in a number of Star Trek episodes. Even in DS9, there was once an attempt to explain away the Bajoran gods as mysterious aliens. Yep. However, by the last two seasons of the series, the showrunner decided to, to depict the Bajoran religion as an authentic phenomenon that could not be explained away by scientific inquiry or logic. The Bajoran religion could only be understood as a matter of faith that should be accepted on its own terms. And the documentary also tackles two other complaints um, that were labeled at the, the show. The alleged darker tone of the series and the casting of an African-American as the show's leads. Um, not surprisingly, these concerns have reemerged again regarding Star Trek's newest show, Discovery, for obvious reasons. <laughs> So we believe the darker tone criticism is inexplicably connected to the race of the leading character. In this case, Avery Brooks, who portrayed the character ben, uh, Benjamin Sisko, the commanding officer of the space station. All Star Trek television series and films have dealt with serious matters some of which concern possible genocide of a species or even threaten the existence of the entire galaxy. So why is the charge regarding the presence of a darker tone primarily leveled at the series with African-American leads? Definitely, racism plays a part in this characterization. Let's look at the case of Avery Brooks in more detail. Although Avery Brooks didn't record any new segments for the documentary. The film does take time to focus on the evolution of his character, and they use excerpts from previous interviews that he had done either at conventions or for the documentary The Captains that William Shatner did earlier. The series producers hired Brooks, an accomplished singer and stage actor, best known for to the general public by one of his television characters, Hawk, a streetwise enforcer and private detective. With his bald head and stylish goatee and the hip clothes, Hawk conveyed a persona of a strong, virile black man in command of any situation. However, after hiring Brooks for the part of Cisco, 
Studio heads sought to neuter those aspects of the actor that appeared too urbane and ethnic. For instance, Brooks no longer could sport a bald head, as Patrick Stewart had done in The Next Generation. Instead, he wore a closely cropped haircut and a clean-shaven face. As noted in the documentary, this was done to inhibit comparisons to Brooks' former Hawk character, while attempting to tone down the machismo attributes the producers thought would make white audiences uncomfortable. Yet when Ira Stephen Bear took over as showrunner's responsibilities in season three, he realized those seemingly innocuous changes to Cisco's physical appearance inhibited the ability of those care of those qualities that make a commander a unique and formidable person. Yes. were being denied him. For, for the remainder of the series run, the producers allowed Brooks to return to his normal Hawk-inspired look and swagger that separated him from every other Star Trek captain. The documentary also covered other topics we do not have time to cover in more detail. However, we would like to cite some of the ones that we found most interesting in this two-hour, ten-minute film. Within the documentary, showrunner Bear leads a team of former DS9 writers in an exercise of creating a pilot for a sequel series of the show starring many of the original characters. Throughout the film, excerpts from this imaginary pilot video storyboard are shown seemingly to entice fans to advocate for the show's revival. Yeah. It, it actually was pretty good. I thought yeah. it was an entertaining idea. Yeah. I mean, it was an exercise to give them a reason to get together and, yeah. and show what they did on a regular basis for seven years. Okay, so another point in the uh, documentary is that Avery Brooks insisted that his widowed character be, be portrayed as a strong and loving father to his son, Jake. In an interview with Sirach Lofton, the actor who spent his formative years playing the role of Jake over seven years, Sirach stated Brooks' insistent, insistence on playing a model father figure became important to him on and off screen. To this day, Sirach says Brooks still treats him as though he's a member of his own family even though the veteran actor has three of his own adult children. Right. right. He said he called him his son when he would take them out yeah. and he would be with his son. That's right. right. You know. So the documentary argues that no other show outside of those that with a predominantly black cast at the time that the show ran dominated, had scenes where black characters dominated. I mean, in many cases, you'll have one or two black characters on screen and a multitude of white actors. But in, in this show, you would have scenes that would go by where there'd be three or four black characters on screen on a regular basis. The, in fact, we contend that the DS9 takes its st a step further in that no other series, including Discovery, depicts how one's black heritage informs the qualities of the character. For instance, in the case of Cisco, we learn how influenced he is by his African-American heritage of his ancestors as embodied by his father, Jeff Joseph Cisco, 
who is a master chef with a restaurant in New Orleans. Joseph instills in his son and his grandson a love of a deep of deep appreciation for his people, their cultures, and values. Thus, it's no surprise that there were times when Benjamin feels the need to revisit his roots to ground him in those ideals in the most important times in his life. More so than that, than any other team, DS9 writers made one's culture and heritage an important aspect of the human characters, including Dr. Bashir and Miles O'Brien, as well as the alien characters, such as the Bajoran Kieran Aris, Odo, a member of the Changelings, and even all of the, the, the Ferengi, you know. Uh, well, now that you've mentioned Ferengi, let me just talk about that a little bit. So Armin uh, Shimmerman, who played Quark, a Ferengi who ran a bar gaming establishment in Hollow Suite on the station, recalled the importance of ensuring an, a consistent yet complex portrayal of the fictional race of beings who were often played by those of Jewish descent and had qualities stereotypically attributed to Jews. For instance, profit remained the primary motivator of Ferengi actions, and they tended to be cliquish. Shimmerman would safeguard the Ferengi portrayal by regularly inviting actors cast in these roles to his home to talk about how to approach these characters. As the series progressed, the show's writers, many of them Jewish white males, wrote more complex and engaging storylines for the Ferengi that sometimes were at odds with their original characterization. Even as, And that's interesting, too, because we've, with Armin Shimmerman, he played one of the original Ferengi we saw on Next Generation. That's right. Uh, Terry Farrell, who played a member of the Trill species and call and, and was Jezia Dax, mm-hmm. told of her emotional departure from the show after season six. Um, Farrell retells the story that the producers did not negotiate her contract in good faith, which she which led her to make a decision to leave the show. None of the other cast members appear to want to take sides in the matter, and the producers simply term the matter as unfortunate, yeah. which to me re- actually supports everything that she says. Okay, well, well, for season four, bringing former Next Generation cast member Michael Dorn to reprise his role as Worf was not initially taken well by DS9 cast members since they felt that their roles would be diminished. However... Most of them found their apprehensions to be unfounded as the series continued. Yet, although Dorn has stated he got along well with the other DS9 cast members, on various convention panels where he shared the stage with other Next Generation cast members, Dorn described his experience on DS9 as strained and not as much fun as his time on the former series. In fact, in the DS9 documentary, Dora never appears at ease or connected to the other DS9 cast members. Yeah, I know what's wrong with Michael Dorn's 
situation with the DS9 characters. Was it? I don't he's not a very good actor. Right, right. I mean, he lets the makeup do a lot more of his acting than he should do. Right. And um there's some real real strong talented three-dimensional actors that were on that show. And I just I think that he didn't bear up for most part. Well, that's I can't disagree. (laughs) (laughs) The documentary also affords a significant amount of time to focus on a diverse array of secondary and reoccurring characters, such as exiled Cardassian Garrick, um, Gold Dukat, who then loses his goldness and he's just Dukat, the domineering Cardassian leader, the Ferengi's Ram and Na, Quark's brother and nephew, Sisko's second wife, Cassidy Yates, uh, Wei Yun, a cloned member of the Vorta species who, supervi- who supervises the enslaved Jem Hadar people for, with drugs. And, of course, Vic Fontaine. One the, of my favorites. The holographic lounge singer who sang like Frank Sinatra and the other Rack Pack singers. In fact, he actually is probably, when you look at it, he's the most... He, he personifies many of the aspects that, Steve, that Ira Stephen Bear uses in his daily way of talking. I mean, right, right. He, Bear uses a lot of that Rat Pack style, talk, you know, of phrases and slang in his regular talking. Showrunner Bear claims the only subject which the show did not treat to his satisfaction were themes involving LGBTQ themes. Whether or not you are already a fan of DS9 or know little or anything about the show, I want to we want to really highly recommend the documentary, What We Left Behind, as well as the special features included with this package. However, we also want to encourage you to take time to rewatch Deep Space Nine or watch it for the first time, even though the entire series has yet to be remastered at to high-definition quality. We promise you will find the story stimulating and thoughtful and the cast members take a very on a very challenging storyline to develop engaging and what we believe to be first-rate performances. So in a recent interview, even Ethan Peck said he was persuaded by a friend and Star Trek nerd to watch the entire series. Ethan said he is in the process of binge-watching the show and is highly enjoying it. To uh, further whet your appetite for this series, we just want to spend a few more minutes with telling you about Two of our favorite episodes. So here's my t- uh, pick. My choice is actually a two-part episode from season three called Past Tense, which first premiered on January 8th and 15th, 1995. So what happens? There's a transporter malfunction that mistakenly sends Cisco, Dax, and Bashir back in time to San Francisco in 2024, which is only a few years away from our uh, date. So here they find themselves in a world unable to cope with the rising tide of homelessness in a humane way. Those with enough money, power, or influence live in a walled enclave. So not to deal with those without basic needs or people with mental illness. Those within the sectors of poverty live in a world in which they become prey or the predator, 
no matter what values they originally professed. The three crew members from DS9 are separated upon their materialization in San Francisco. Dax, an alien who looks like a white person with markings similar to tattoos, is found alone by a wealthy media entrepreneur who assumes she belongs within the walled enclave. In contrast, Cisco and Bashir, persons of color, are given no such chance to remain on the privileged side of the wall. The two are immediately taken to Sector A, where they must be on constant guard for their safety. While there, they realize they have arrived at a pivotal moment in time, a few days before the Bell Riots, which lead to the eventual dismantling of this inhumane system, separating the haves from the have-nots. The Bell Riots are significant because without this sea change, humankind may not evolve in a way that would lead to the United Earth Federation and its eventual alliance with the United Federations of Planets and the, initi and the initiation of Starfleet. Any change in this one critical focal point erases the future as the DS9 crew had experienced. Now, I won't spoil the resolution of these two episodes. However, I will tell you why I find myself returning to this, to this over and over again. The story is a cautionary tale that appears even more truthful today than when it first aired 24 years ago. We need to look no further than our own U.S. borders where we treat asylum seekers as undesirables, caging them as criminals, and separating them from their loved ones. In the Trump era, era we're living through now, you can easily say these episodes are prophetic. Moreover, no other Star Trek series treats race with as much frankness as DS9. In past tense, in this episode, Cisco, a student of history and racial politics, shows no surprise at the biased treatment received at the hands of the privileged and those persons of color who tenuously serve at the behest of the advantaged people of that society. However, Bashir is profoundly shaken by what he experiences and asks Cisco, how could they have let things get so bad? And Cisco responds, that's a good question. I wish I had the answer. Yet, despite the circumstance, Bashir displays a sense of solidarity with Cisco when given a chance to get to relative safety with Dax to await transport back to their ship, the USS Defiant, Bashir pledges to stay with Cisco even if it means they may face injury, death, or not be able to return to their own 24th century timeline. The Star Trek world of Gene Roddenberry naively assumes that one day humankind will, will solve issues of status, income, religious, race, gender, and ethnicity. Yet none of the episodes give any clue as to how these problems were mitigated. 
DS9 at least admits these issues had to be dealt with and such a process did not come about easily. In that way, DS9 is much more realistic than other Star Trek series. Okay, my pick is episode 13 of season 6, Far Beyond the Stars. The teleplay was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Hans Belmer, based on an original story by Mark Scott Zakri. And it's directed by series lead Avery Brooks. It premiered February 11th, 1998. This is my second favorite DS9 episode of the entire series. The, my first love is In the Pale Moonlight, but I chose Far Beyond the Stars because I feel it resonates with both the overall appreciation of DS9 and also the struggle the show had with its audience. The episode opens as follows. We find the stress of the Dominion War is preying on Captain Benjamin Sisko's confidence. Although the Federation is in firm control of the station, the Cardassian border is still a risky place for Federation ships to patrol. Specifically, the U.S. Cortez was destroyed there recently. A six-hour search by the Defiant failed to find any survivors, meaning Captain Quentin Swafford is dead. Swafford is a man Ben knew very well. He had even introduced Swafford to the woman who would, he would later marry. As such, he begins to despair as to whether they're making any difference in the war effort at all. Um, his father, Joseph, who has left Earth for the first time to visit his son on Deep Space Nine, and tries to be a sounding board. Ben openly admits that he is seriously considering stepping down and letting someone else make the tough decisions in this war. Joseph promises to support his son no matter what decision he makes, but warns him to think carefully before he does anything. As he discusses the news with his father, Ben is distracted and puzzled when he sees a strange man who appears to look like Odo walk past his office dressed in 1950s earth clothing. He opens the door and Dax standing right outside is in ops, and she insists she didn't see anyone, which only makes it a greater puzzle. Later on, when walking down the corridor with shuttle pilot Cassidy Yates, Ben is again confused when a baseball player resembling Worf walks past and calls out, Hey, Benny, catch the game? Again, Yates is sure she didn't see anyone. So when Sisko follows the man down the, through the door, he finds himself suddenly in the middle of a busy New York street and is, and is immediately hit by a taxi. Now, if you, if you know anything about Deep Space Nine, experiencing visions from the prophets has been a reoccurring experience that Cisco, as the emissary, goes through on this station. But this one is different. Inside Ben's mind, reality and fantasy appears to mix. This time, he comes to see himself as Benny Russell, a science fiction writer 
in the 1950s who struggles with discrimination after writing a story about a black commander in a futuristic space station. I love the duality of Benjamin Sisko serving as both the creator of the story as well as the subject in this episode. Some might criticize this episode for going so far afield from where the Dominion War story was at the time, but I feel it was extremely timely and topical. Far Beyond the Stars is the most overtly political episode the show ever did, even more so than past tense. I love how it provides us with a wonderful opportunity to reflect on the unique position DS9 holds in the Star Trek canon. If you think about it, it sets the story up as a metaphor for the show itself. It's no secret that having a black male lead for this Star Trek series wasn't fully accepted by the fandom. Much like Discovery Today, Deep Space Nine was demissed when it ran originally. To this day, I personally can't stand the description of the show as Dark Star Trek because it has a dual meaning. And I think some people who describe the show this way know that. In the DS9 documentary, Ivan Steven Bear addresses the challenges he faced from the studio about Avery wearing his goatee and shaving his head during the first few seasons. The fear that the people would connect Brooks's performance as the character Hawk on, on Spencer and the band called Hawk with his performance as Ben Sisko. The fact that this was an issue at all is evidence of why Far Beyond the Stars is so biting. The reactions to Benny's fictional story, The Black Man at the Center, is a commentary on the reactions that were received by Deep Space Nine. One of the unique elements in this episode is that is that we see DS9 series regulars and a few of the recurring cast members portrayed as human characters within the illusion of 1950s New York. And they are there without their alien makeup or costumes. The drama of the episode plays out, with each of them taking sides on the racial reality that Benny is confronting. When Benny is beaten by local policemen, he's they're played by actors Mike Alimo, who played Dakot, and Jeffrey Combs, who played Wayone, for and their and, and for reacting to their cold-blooded murder of a young black man who was played by Jake the Jake Sisko actor Cyric Lofton. We feel his pain in that situation, but that pain is compounded when he returns to work for the first time since the beating, only to learn that the publishers have pulped that much month's issue of Galaxy Magazine because it included his Cisco story. And furthermore, the publishers have decided to fire Benny. The rest of the staff recoils in shock at that knowledge, but Benny tells them that he can't be fired because he quits. Mm -hmm. He is devastated that everyone is attempting to deny both himself and Ben Sisko that the publishers are attempting to destroy the story, but he, he says to them, sobbing, that they cannot destroy the idea of Ben Sisko. Ben Sisko, Deep Space Nine, and all the people from his story exist inside his head and in the heads of everyone who's read it. 
In fact, he says, you can't pulp a story. You can't destroy an idea. You don't understand. That's ancient knowledge. You cannot destroy an idea. That's future. I created, and it's real. You Don't you understand? It's real. I created it, and it's real. Benny finally collapsed, sobbing and cradled by his former co-workers. And as he's carted away in an ambulance, Benny finds the preacher sitting beside him and sees himself in a strange uniform. He says, who am I? He, and the preacher responds, you are the dreamer and the dream. Avery Brooks's performance carefully conveys to the viewing audience his resolve to be seen as a black man because no matter what they do, they can't destroy the idea of Captain Benjamin Sisko or what that means. In the documentary, Nana Visitor retells the story of the, the day of they, that they shot that powerful scene with Avery Brooks as Benny he collapsed on the floor, crying and remaining in the fetal position, even after the assistant director called shot, had called cut. The resonance of that moment is enhanced when you see how connected the experiences of Benny Russell are to those of Benjamin Sisko, as well as those of Avery Brooks. There's a seamlessness that few actors are ever able to present between performer and performance. That's why I chose this episode to discuss. All right. So, uh, so I hope that's enticed you to look at the full season because yeah. there's some wonderful episodes in there that we didn't have time to talk about. There's lots of episodes. There's a lot of great episodes yeah. in this show. But I think it's time now to move on to other Star Trek news. Shoot. So first we're going to start talking about uh, the Par Picard series. The Picard series recently wrapped filming in Los Angeles and is now in post-production phase. Before the series premieres in 2020... Early 2020. Early 2020, yes. <laughs> we look forward to more trailers as well as a short track designed to serve as a tie-in to the Picard series. The Saturn Awards happened this past Friday, September 13th, and Star Trek Discovery was the recipient of three Saturn Awards. The awards honored the best in science fiction, fantasy, horror, and other genres belonging to genre fiction in film, broadcast television, streaming media, and local theater productions. Star Trek Discovery won the awards in three categories. The show won the Best Streaming Science Fiction Action and Adventure Series. It won um, Sonequa Martin-Green earned an award for Best Actress in a Streaming Presentation. And Doug Jones won the Saturn Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Streaming um, Presentation. A little news about the War Series rumor. Um, last month at a Keystone Comic Con in Philadelphia, Michael Dorn once again pitched his idea for a Wharf series. This is not a new initiative, but something Dorn has been pitching since 2012. Having portrayed the character in Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, as well as several movies, it's certain that uh, he's one of the most more popular characters the 66-year-old 66 act, 66 actor 
has played in his career. Now, okay, now let's be honest. Let's count the other major characters that Michael Dorn has played. He was in Chips. He was the black cop in Chips. Yeah. You don't even know his name. No. Right, exactly. He was exactly. the black guy. He was the black guy in Chips. Yeah. So although both of us have appreciated the war storyline over the years, especially the arc written for him in, T, uh, in The Next Generation, Neither one of us think Dorn is strong enough as an actor to serve as a lead in a series. Now, we're in favor of the actor reprising this role as a guest star in the Picard series, but we can't muster up any excitement for a series starring an actor who must rely so heavily on makeup and costume to assist him in the portrayal of his character. Now, this next one I really want to talk about. Okay. Yeah, Walter Mosley quits the Discovery Writers team. Now, so in um, a September 6th New York Times article, op-ed actually, um, it was revealed that African-American novelist Walter Mosley resigned from the Dis- Discovery writers team earlier this year in fact only three weeks after he started the job um, after another writer complained about Mosley using the n-word when he was retelling an anecdote from his past um, during a conference with a representative from the human resource department the novelist was told he could not use the word in a script or even in conversation well he could use it in the script he could use it in a script if necessary, but he was prohibited from speaking the word aloud since it made at least one of the writers in the team feel uncomfortable. In the Times article, Mosley argued that it was a freedom of speech issue, and as a black man who has been made to feel uncomfortable most of his life in this country, it should be his prerogative whether or not he should use the word. So in the Times article, Mosley writes about his experience, but does not name the show. Right. However, soon after the publication of the article, other news outlets added details to the story. Right. It is the Hollywood Reporter which identifies Discovery as the show which Mosley quit after only three weeks on the job. Knowing that the writers for the Discovery began working on season three in March, we can assume this incident must have occurred during that month or early in April at the latest. Now, while it, we are freedom of speech advocates in most cases, I mean, well, actually, I'm a freedom of speech advocate in pretty much all cases. Well, but this is not a freedom of speech issue. This is not really a freedom of speech right. issue. Uh-huh. We believe that the, that the HR department was right to ask Mosley to refrain from using the N-word in conversation with his, his co-workers. If we were hold, to hold the policy for white people, then it should also apply to black people in the workplace. It's also should be noted that Mosley was not fired. Instead, he made a choice not to return without notifying, even notifying HR or the producers of his decision. Moreover, this was not the case where Mosley was the only person of color in the writing team. As you know, if you've been following Discovery, you know that the, the writing team is quite diverse, yes. both in ethnicity and in gender. Yes. Um, even without Mosley, the the Discovery Writers Team includes three other African American women. I mean, three other African Americans, two Asian American writers, a Native American writer, as well as a Latinx woman. 
Right. So I, I think our next item um, is to talk about the New York Comic Con lineup. Okay. So on October 5th, which uh, will be in a few weeks, fans attending the New York Comic Con will get to experience two back-to-back Trek panels, including actors from Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard. The Star Trek Discovery part of the panel, which takes place from 1 to 1.45 at the Hulu Theater at Madison Square Garden, will feature Sonequa Martin-Green, Doug Jones, Mary Wiseman, Anthony Rapp, Wilson Cruz, David Ajala, who plays his new character Booker, and the executive producers of the show. This will be followed by the Star Trek Picard segment of the panel, which will run from 1.45 to 2.30 in the same place. This panel will include Sir Patrick Stewart, Sir Pat Stu, <laughs> Alison Peel, Issa Briones, uh, Michelle Hurd, Santiago Cabrera, Harry Treadway, and even Evagora, as well as the ex- executive producers of the show. In addition to the panels, fans can take part in the USS Discovery Transporter experience. Also, in addition, CBS All Access invites fans attending the convention to to step aboard the USS Discovery and travel to strange and distant lands throughout an immersive transporter experience. The transporter experience former experience will be available starting Thursday, October 3rd through Sunday, October 6th in the Crystal Palace at Javits Center. The New York Comic Con begins Thursday, October 3rd and runs through Sunday, October 6th. All right, so more Discovery news. Uh, Discovery Season 2 Blu-ray. Season 2 of Discovery will be released on Blu-ray and DVD on November 12th in the United States and Canada. The release includes over two hours of bonus material, as well as two episodes of Star Trek short treks tied into the second season of Discovery. Those episodes are Runaway featuring Ensign Sylvia Tilly and The Brightest Star featuring Commander Saru. The edition will be released in Europe in late November and in other parts of the world in December and early 2020. The Nichelle Nichols Farewell Celebration will take place May 1st through 3rd at the Marriott Burbank Hotel. Uh, The events are advertised as Nichelle Nichols' last public appearance at a conference. As you know, the famed 86-year-old actress, known for her portrayal of Uhura in the original series, was diagnosed with exhibiting the early stages of dementia over a year ago. Her farewell celebration will include panels, traditional photo ops, and autograph signings, a Friday night party, and a Saturday night banquet, and original series luncheon with Nichols in attendance. In addition to Nichols herself, the guest list for the farewell celebration includes her fellow original series cast members, Walter Koenig, who played Pavel Chekhov, Next Generation's Marina Sirtis, who played Deanna Troy, Discovery's executive producer, Rod Roddenberry, as well as original series writers, 
Dorothy D.C. Fontana, and David Gerald. Uh, Star Trek graphic artist Michael and Denise Okuda and many others will also attend. Well, that's it for now. We'll be back within a month with our next installment, which is which is inspired by a recent appearance by longtime fan favorite Jonathan Frakes at the recent Fan Expo in Toronto uh, during a Q&A session. Since he could not provide any details regarding his directing or acting assignments on Picard or Discovery, for the most part he entertained the crowd with his self-effacing humor and anecdotes from his years playing Lieutenant Commander Will Riker on The Next Generation. For our next podcast, we want to address comments Frick made in response to a question asking if the third season of Discovery would be more representational of Gene Roddenberry's original optimistic vision for the future. Frakes replied, After Gene died, some of the writers felt Deep Space Nine should take a different tone, which they did to a certain degree of success. And the optimism that Gene infused in all of his shows and all of us may not be as obvious as it once was, but it's certainly the driving force of his vision in the franchise. And Kurtzman and all of the people who run our shows are very conscious that that canon is important to you and all of us. J.J.'s movies, I thought, were uplifting and wonderful, and they told stories. And there needs to be conflict to make drama. He went on to say, But I am here to report that Discovery has certainly taken a more optimistic traditional Star Trek approach in the upcoming season. There is quite a bit to unpack here. As our listeners know by now, we're both hardcore Star Trek fans, but we're realistic about the positive aspects as well as the convenient omissions of the depiction of this fictional future, which should still project the growth and struggles humans will have as they evolve. Thus, uh, we would like to use our next podcast to delve deeper into the subject. We will explore. What do we mean by the words optimism and traditional in the Star Trek universe? The characterizations of Deep Space Nine and Discovery as being relatively darker than other shows instead of being seen as more realistic. The no-profit motive in Earth's future. How does this come about? And the whole thing about racial and ethnic diversity, let's explore that. Yes, as well as the naivete and convenient myth of Gene Roddenberry. Wow. So until next time, let's like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter at Star Trek AOD and Facebook at Facebook.com slash Star Trek AOD at our website Star Trek AOD.net where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues and as- other aspects of the show. Also email us at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then live long and prosper.